Welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Esbekuldova. Joining me today is Kate Kenny, Professor of Business and Society at NYI Galway School of Business and Economics, to discuss her book Whistleblowing Toward a New Theory, published in 2019 with Harvard University Press. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> First of all, let me say that you have written a wonderful book on whistleblowing in global finance, one that not only reveals a great deal about the experiences of being labeled and positioned as a whistleblower, but it also forces us to think about our own effective and ideological investment in the maintenance of the illusion and fantasy of trustworthiness and goodness of the global financial institutions which manifests itself in the violence against and the myriad of expulsions of the object and threatening whistleblower with his transgressive and impossible speech, dismissal as mentally unstable, foolish or psychotic, or simply in the general acceptance of retaliation as the cost of speaking out. Your book forces us to think not only about the subjectivation of the whistleblowers, but also of our own subjectivation and about our complicity and willingness to look the other way. But it also positions these modes of subjectivation within the political and socioeconomic context of the disproportionate power of the finance industry and its lobby over many nation states, regulatory bodies and our own actions. In the book, rather than trying to define who or what is a whistleblower, you examine in detail and through the stories of those who came to be publicly known as whistleblowers in global finance, what has happened to them when they were given this label by choice or as is often the case ad hoc by their lawyer, journalist or the public? And you trace the trajectories of whistleblowing from the initial discovery of a wrongdoing, addressing it through internal channels to eventually going public. I think what is most fascinating in these cases is that most of your informants were in fact in charge of risk management, compliance, anti-money laundering and anti-corruption work in their respective institutions and it was just their job to flag and report fraud, suspicious transactions or unethical behavior. So they were doing their job, but their concerns were systematically ignored and they were actively being prevented from performing the duties that came with risk compliance and the audit roles. Moreover, the more systemic the corruption and fraud, the more violent the response to raising their concerns appeared to be. This in turn often sparked a very long and complex battle for being heard and recognized as a legitimate voice, both within the organization and in the public, with a legitimate concern, and often a prolonged fight against attempts of organizations, media and others to delegitimize the whistleblower. So when it comes to whistleblowing, the focus is too often turned against the individual, both in media, law and in theory. And you make an argument for the need uh, for a new theory of whistleblowing and uh, speak of effective recognition. So why is the focus on the individual problematic and why do we need a new theory? Okay, well, thank you for that incredible introduction, um, Teresa, and um, I really appreciate uh, the detail that in which you've read the book. Um, very much appreciated and uh, it's, it's nice to hear the different um, aspects um, echoed. So in terms of, yeah, the individual focus on the whistleblower, I think, you know, if if you think right now of a, a whistleblower you might know or heard of in the news um, of late, I don't know, any figure that comes to mind, we tend to think of this individual person. So I don't know, Edward Snowden, for example, um, would be one recent, uh, or Dr. Rick Bright, if we're talking about whistleblowers during COVID. 
Now, they tend to appear to us in our kind of imagination as this solitary person who, because of their individual nature, they're often stereotyped in one of either two ways. They're either sort of like set up on a pedestal as this incredible sort of superhuman hero, you know, and what they do is heroic. So there's definitely important aspects to that. But the superhuman and extraordinary bit often prevents us from seeing ourselves as ever being in this situation. So the individual uh, focus can sort of lead to that, the focus on this one uh, superhuman person, which is problematic. And it's a focus in the research on whistleblowing, as well as the way in which whistleblowers are often reported. The other aspect is if we can't see these figures as somewhat like ourselves, then there's two aspects. Number one, we don't see ourselves as potentially um, people who could come forward about wrongdoing. After all, many of us are in work and we know from research lots of us encounter wrongdoing every day. Uh, Not every day, sorry, but we'll encounter serious wrongdoing at some point in our lives. And, you know, it's it's by seeing people as these kind of extraordinary, we don't see that we too could speak up about um, wrongdoing. So that's one aspect. And the second aspect and something that after I wrote this book, um, I was encouraged to study in more detail is that we don't see whistleblowers as people we should support if we see them as hyper unusual individuals kind of out there separate from ourselves. Um, what's Reports does society provide for people who, for example, lose their jobs or, for example, are blacklisted and can't work again in their industry? Um, maybe they have kids, maybe they don't, maybe they have dependents. So society doesn't tend to step in and say, well, that was a, a public interest act. This person is now broke or um, can't earn a living. And we, uh, the people who they ultimately help, should step in and help them. We don't see it like that. I think one of the reasons we don't is because of this individual perspective um, that we have. So what I'm trying to argue for in the book is that we need to see whistleblowers as much more connected to the people that they uh, speak up on behalf of, that they, um, in many different ways, that the boundary between whistleblower and everybody else is needs to be a little bit more blurred and problematized so that it compels us to to see people like this as um, worthy and deserving of um, support if it's needed. So that's a long way of answering your question, but I do think it's vital. And I think from reading reports and books and research, um, this individualizing perspective just has problems, yeah. Yes, and you just mentioned that the whistleblowers are often perceived as heroes, but they are I think more more or less equally often perceived as traitors by other actors. Oh, that's definitely <laughs> the second part that I meant of my two part. Yes, um, they are. And, uh, you know, this was big, particularly um, uh, depending on sort of who you're speaking to. I guess I'm speaking from a subject position of I'm an academic and I study whistleblowers and I, you know, talk to activists and uh, whistleblower support groups and other actors. Um, in popular uh, thinking, sometimes there's a big grey area about how people perceive whistleblowers. And they do, they do research on this and ask people, for example, there was a recent study here in Ireland, you know, what are the top words that spring to mind if you hear the word whistleblower? And, you know, people said things like snitch or traitor or informer, all these uh, words that have kind of negative connotations in different um, countries for different reasons, but typically can be uh, very negative in perception as well. So, 
Yeah, so I think in both cases, they are basically either as heroes or as traitors. They are seen as extreme figures, right? So they are more yeah. ambiguous and transgressive. And, uh, and I think they often end up right. being kind of always positioned as by default, almost as deviant, as abnormal, non-compliant and difficult. And even this kind of difficulty is then used uh, to kind of delegitimize the claims. And, and precisely this individualization that you talk about is often used to kind of fo focus on the person and, and rather than the cause and the thing that they are actually bringing forth. So I think that mm -hmm. uh, I think it's super important to to focus on these structural aspects and uh, and uh, and a kind of <laughs> stop thinking of the whistleblower in these terms because it really prevents any kind of uh, possibility to breaking with this kind of status quo. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I noticed in the book you write at some point that the status quo, and I quote this, uh, is that whistleblowers will, will be retaliated against, they will suffer, and laws will continue to fail to protect them. This state mm -hmm. of affairs continues and is effectively and, and it effectively institutionalizes the tragedy of the whistleblower. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I think that uh, this is uh, this is very important to kind of have a theory to look differently at 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 this uh, at this. And what I really liked is how you connect the the subjectivation, the individual to the structural forces. And you note that the financial services whistleblowers are scarce. And people tend to stay silent or resign when witnessing wrongdoing. And it, and it appears to be one of the most difficult industries in which to speak out. And no less because of the industry norms that function as a source of recognition for the, for the people working in these industries. And I know that the reasons are more complex than this, but maybe you can briefly tell us why is financial services uh, such a difficult industry to actually become a whistleblower within and and how did you also manage to get these people to talk to you? I know that they are mostly kind of uh, public figures themselves, but uh, but maybe you can say something about that. Sure, no problem. Um, and before I do, I just want to say that um, when I'm making these points, and I think the same is true for lots of people who research whistleblowing, uh, we know from research that a people speak up every day in their workplaces about things that are wrong and uh, retaliation only happens in about one in every five cases. So I think four out of every five attempts to, if you like, whistleblowers speak up about wrongdoing. And I'm talking about sort of, you know, big and small wrongdoing. Four out of five cases actually don't encounter retaliation. So what I'm describing here, and I think a lot of um, people that are working in this area are the the one in five that do that that receive violent reprisals or minor reprisals or various forms of reprisals for speaking truth to power so i think it's important to clarify that it's not that we'd be saying everybody who speaks up receives this so that's the first thing to say um why is financial services such a difficult um, area in which to speak up. Well, I think there's particular norms um, have emerged around sort of silence as an important um, way of being in that particular milieu that uh, one looks to one's colleagues and one's friends um, at work. Whenever something comes up, you try and sort of even implicitly, if not explicitly, suss out the cultural norms and, and what's the appropriate thing to do. And this is just one area that for various historical reasons uh, has been increasingly difficult. Now, we do see areas where that's changing um, and it's changing in sort of interesting uh, ways. So the US obviously um, under the Securities and Exchange Commission have been offering, they've uh, 
used the original False Claims Act to offer quite substantial rewards to financial services whistleblowers uh, if they come forward with information about wrongdoing that yields uh, an income for the government. So in other words, if they can bring forward details about corruption that the government can then use to take a case against a bank, for example, or a financial institution, the whistleblower is entitled to you know, up to 30%, between 10 and 30%, I think, of the, the payout. Uh, so <laughs> people have studied the pro proclivity of financial services staff um, in the US in jurisdictions where those rewards apply and actually you're getting sort of 80 to 90% of people saying, oh, I would speak up actually in that case. So <laughs> it's kind of, that's the one of the latest moves is the idea that, well, we do need um, to incentivize these kinds of things. But certainly the period that I was looking at in the book, which we'll all remember as um, connected to the, to the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009, I was looking at, I mean, why nobody spoke up. And if you followed some of the parliamentary inquiries, there was one in well, Ireland, there was one in uh, most countries held an inquiry afterwards to say uh, most countries that were particularly affected by the crisis and were seen as kind of places where it, it um, emerged, the US included, held these inquiries. And always in the inquiry report that came out, usually a few years later, there's a paragraph or a chapter on whistleblowing. We need to encourage and incentivize and praise whistleblowers because if it wasn't uh, for them being silenced, we wouldn't have had a crisis. So the narrative from the financial crisis was very much about um, encouraging these individuals. But like you say, what I found really interesting when I started to look at this was how few there were um, that you could actually pinpoint and say, well, these people were trying to speak up. So in terms of kind of accessing and convincing people to be part of the study, um, I it's a difficult area. And I think that's why it's often uh, people struggle to, to research the area, because obviously it's one of these um, sectors or this, these aspects of life that aren't always amenable for investigation. So um, I would be working with and help out various whistleblower advocacy groups, you know, by providing research or uh, speaking at events, those kinds of things. And so I had connections from that perspective and it went from a sort of a snowball, you know, in academia, we would talk about snowball or convenience sampling, where you work with people that you know in your network who can then pass you on to other people. So it was about um, gaining sort of the trust and uh, connecting with people that way and asking them if they wanted to tell their stories. Um, about their experiences. So I think that was key. Yes, uh, now you, sp yeah, you talked about the, the newer developments in trying to incentivize even more that people come forward and uh, become whistleblowers. But yeah. What kind of struck me <laughs> in, in your book was that when it, whenever it came kind of to the cases of systemic corruption and fraud that uh, these whistleblowers described, they tended to directly link it to kind of incentive structures and performance management strategies in organizations like large bonuses and excessive rewards, outlandish targets that they that the workers had to hit, benchmarking, short-term focus, valorization of indicators and kind of excessive risk-taking. And so mm. much of this kind of boils down to what has become rather common and widespread management strategy in the most workplaces. 
And uh, these strategies, and I've argued that myself <laughs> earlier, can easily turn into kind of criminogenic uh, forces uh, and malpractice is uh, being rewarded and ethical concerns are suppressed, right? And yeah. so, I mean, within that context where <laughs> where you have so many incentives for kind of bad behavior, to say it uh, <laughs> that way, you kind of try to infuse within the same systems new incentives towards speaking out against that. But I mean, the problem that if you, if you, if you take this kind of case of systemic corruption, as is not a one, 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 one time occurrence, uh, is actually systemic, right? And then you mm -hmm. try to fight it within the same kind of remedies that they, <laughs> that create the problem. Uh, I mean, you've just hit the nail on the head and I feel this needs to be made it more explicit. And I'm delighted you brought this up. In many ways, this is both sides of a, a game of kind of, how would you say, late capitalism or, or particularly sort of certain kinds of, um, of marketized approaches to how we look at firms and work. What you're trying to do is uh, either incentivize financially people for bad behavior. And if, 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 if you want to counter that, incentivize people financially, for the, but it's all a market. So it seems to be, it's a market for information um, and it's a market to sort of suppress that information. But at the heart of it is the idea that these things need to be paid for, right? So <laughs> now we are talking about a particular cultural context here. Uh, rewards have been in place, I think, first in South Korea. Um, other countries have kind of little parts of their um, legislation or their policy, rather. I have a PhD student in Nigeria and he's studying um, whistleblowing there and rewards are uh, part of the policy there. I think um, even aspects of the UK, there's a small aspect, I think, in the tax uh, policy there that incentivize. But mainly we think about the, the US mm -hmm. and um, the reward system. But it's very interesting how you paint it in the macro systemic um, context, because in many ways, what a whistleblower therefore is under the logic is we are asking these individuals to kind of insert themselves into a system that is failing. Um, a system that will not regulate uh, properly, that will ignore the proper checks and balances. And, well, it's okay because we have whistleblowers and we'll pass new whistleblower law and we'll strengthen whistleblower laws. So we still have these people. I mean, you're just thinking of this, this poor, um, vulnerable employee who's just attempting to speak out in the interests of other people um, and who's essentially being left as the last protection in a failing system um you know and I, when you look at it from that me, um sort of meta point of view uh the inequity is incredibly um it's overwhelming really isn't it yes <laughs> indeed and i think uh, this brings uh, also us to, towards the power of the regulatory authorities or their <laughs> lack of uh, enforcement <laughs> Well, that's it. <laughs> right, because I, I, I just have this nice quote from your book where you write that when it comes to potentially exposing a major banking scandal that might destabilize the system, we can see how the first objective, that is to support the stability of the banking system, can be in direct contradiction with the second, the enforcement of regulations. And I mm -hmm. think this is just one example of these tensions, right? Which then mm -hmm. kind of trickle also down into these organizations where, where you have the, the, the enforcers of the compliance that are actually prevented in doing their compliance job. <laughs> so, uh, so, so these kind of tensions are, are kind of structural. So I think that's true. And I, I really, I, you probably saw the movie Inside Job, which came out after the financial crisis. And it really provided an incredibly useful service in that it, it sort of made a lot of these things 
you know, palatable, but it also kind of caricature, uh, ca- it, it gave us characters that described the paradox. And I think you had people from the regulatory agencies saying, well, like, of course, I have a dual mandate here. Of course, the stability of the system needs to be upheld. Um, you know, as uh, and I have that as well as dealing with any perceived corruption. And so, oh, yeah, t- it's 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 really it's very, very deeply kind of problematic. And that's one thing that um, I mean, I would, along with colleagues, be very supportive of right now, obviously, Ireland's in the EU, where I'm located right now. And so we're very, um, there's very vibrant discussions, because we're transposing this new whistleblower directive. And so it is incredibly strong, and incredibly important to be changing legislation in this way and supporting whistleblowers. But um, I suppose the point also does need to be made that like, surely effective regulatory systems would do a job uh, and save us from having uh, to do this to um, to strengthen and bolster and boost individuals uh, so that, you know, okay, you can put yourself forward and sacrifice, but here we'll put in some um, legal uh, policies in place so that you can then get compensation for that. You know, instead of doing that, could we not save them the job in the first place and um, regulate the system uh, as it's set up to be done? So there's a massive silence around that. Um, and I wonder sometimes if is better legislation and calls for that almost not an excuse, but a panacea and a distraction from actually regulating these systems? That's a question that I suppose needs to be asked, you know? Yeah, that's an important question. <laughs> right. Indeed. Uh, uh, and I think that, you know, this uh, this kind of uh, brings us back sort of to, towards the focus on the individual, right? We irresponsibilize the individual. We imagine <laughs> that he can stand against all this, uh, all this kind of systemic... Uh, Systemic problems that are uh, that are not only within the organizations but also pertaining to the interests of the state and the regulatory bodies and stuff. So, right, it's the responsibilization. It's the individualization yeah. of risk, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. Exactly. And, and I mean, the whistleblower gets terribly punished very often in these cases, and uh, and uh, the corporation uh, is, uh, I think, the only person that doesn't go to jail. So, well, <laughs> so, okay. so yes, but. Uh, but I think that the, what, what is also kind of fascinating with these cases is that, you know, it is not that we do not know about, about the things that the, that the individuals try to bring forth. Maybe we don't know about a concrete case. We don't have the concrete files, but generally the, there is a widespread knowledge in society about, about all these sorts of, uh, uh, systemic crimes, money laundering. There's plenty of discussion uh, out there on 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 corruption and uh, and all, and all these issues. But when mm-hmm. it comes to the speech of the whistleblower and the individual, it becomes kind of impossible, right? And uh, mm-hmm. and this is kind of fascinating that it triggers all this all this retaliation, despite the fact that it is not something that could not be expected, <laughs> right? Uh, and so you kind yeah. of have this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, what you kind of describe as this violent reaction, this cruel expulsion of the whistleblower from organizational life, m- both materially and symbolically. And, and this is sort of the business as usual that you try to get rid of the troubling, uh, people that are kind of unsettling this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this business. And, uh, and I think that, uh, this, uh, this I would like you to speak a bit more about what is it that it, that kind of legitimizes this uh, this violence. Uh, how mm. does it work? Well, I think this is why I am I'm so um, 
fond of and uh, appreciate the psychosocialist approach, which, as as you said at the start, it's helpful because it gives us a way of analysing both individuals and people in a system, but also the wider structures of power in the system itself. And it shows the interactions between the two and the important pl- um, role played by things like affect, attachment, desire, which fuel a lot of the dynamics um, that go on. From the point of view of the violent reaction of the organisations, um, Essentially, you know, what are big organizations only sort of entities that are attempting to not saying control the world, but give an element or a sense of control, internal control and external control uh, against a backdrop that's uncertain at best and chaotic, you know, at times. The world does not behave as we wish it to behave, but for particularly large organizations, the, um, the 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 fantasy of control is something that um, must be obtained, uh, uh, must be upheld, and must be um, maintained, both for external investors and employees. And yet, organisations are places that necessarily generate anxiety when that sense of control is um, is in any way threatened. And they generate anxiety because of the way you know, in an organisation, you have a hierarchy. You have uh, bosses who are responsible for high-level decisions, and they pass that responsibility down to um, to lower-level employees, often without passing the power down. And so these are absolute containers of anxiety. And when a whistleblower speaks up, um, it's disturbing and destabilizing that entire kind of milieu that I think on some level we know is a kind of a fantasy of control, but it's seen as a threat on a very deep level. Uh, to the individuals within the organization. And that's before we even talk about how, you know, over-identification with our our jobs and and our organizations can be a factor. But so I think the the person who speaks out triggers a sense of defensiveness um, on behalf of the organization and the individuals in it. Now, this isn't, I I would be wrong to claim at all that this is my idea, that Fred Alford, um, professor in Maryland, wrote this beautiful book, Whistleblowers, I think it's called organizational um, power and broken lives, actually the reverse of both that sentence. But um, in, in his book, which came out in tw- 2001, he, he, he describes this defensiveness and uh, the, ex- the, the, the throwing out of the whistleblower figure that must be expelled to defend the boundary. And what I've tried to do in the book is to extend that theory further, because what I came up again and again is that society sort of joins that project of insp- expulsion, um, that uh, different institutions in society um, join in and, and, uh, and, and do the work of the organisation in further expelling the whistleblower through things like recruitment practices when a person finds themselves blacklisted. For example, um, a recent research we carried out showed that over 60% of people who no longer work in the same role because they spoke out or whistleblew end up finding themselves either formally or informally blacklisted. So it is quite common. But this is a kind of a other organisations take up the stigmatisation and the expulsion that the original organisation begun. We also find the kind of stigma that people can encounter with friends and family um, and various other aspects. So it's not just organisations sort of repelling the individual, um, but ourselves as well. And I think this is such, why whistleblowing is such a fascinating and disturbing area because it, you know, it, it compels us to think about various sides of our nature um, to do with sort of attachments to groups 
and needs to belong and defense of boundaries. At the same time, our, our admiration for truth telling and uh, our demand for transparency and, uh, and, you know, what we would see as the right thing to be done. So there's all these various ways that are kind of, um, that, that, that come out. But I think there's um, various uh, studies on the sort of psychosocial approach to organizations that really do merit attention because they show us that we often think of organizations as benign, kind of like, you know, a chair or <laughs> a building. It's just there. It's an organization. But, um, but they do have complex, complex dynamics. They do act as containers for all sorts of desires, all sorts of projections, all sorts of anxieties. And when you scale up an organization and you scale up those dynamics too, and it can come out in all sorts of ways. So I think whenever we feel like we're just getting down with work or the organization is is becoming very difficult to take and don't worry it's not you it's it's the organization it's a dynamic that's recognized in these things they are not necessarily always benign inert objects if that makes sense yeah indeed it does make sense <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, no i was just thinking about that about you you speak a lot about recognition and i think this is uh super interesting because uh I, I, you know, I always wonder what makes people actually knowingly commit harm, right? Because in many cases, all these kind of frauds, it is not that people do not know that, uh, that they are participating in something like that, but they are kind of willing to do that. And, uh, and I think they, at some point you're right that uh, when the alternative is symbolic extinction, it becomes mm. often preferable to exist in subordination rather than not to exist at all. And mm. I think that this partly explains this uh, sort of willingness to subject ourselves to to norms uh, that we know well uh, that injure and de facto inflict harm. Mm. And in the process, uh, it is kind of natural then that certain others come to occupy this position of this truth teller, the ethical other that needs to be really aggressively kind of uh, repudiated or cast out or, or whatever and because they kind of represent that which we tend to disavow right and then uh, mm. and here I <laughs> I liked what you what you point out when you write uh, when you you bring out the concept of objection from Kisteva and then you write that the concept of objection helps us see how the figure of the whistleblower might represent for others an idealized childhood self that once enjoyed a pure sense of right and wrong this notion must be repressed to ensure the survival of the powerful entities that represent a treasured source of identification for so many of these onlookers, the organizations and institutions of global finance. I think this is, this is kind of a spot on observation, right? Uh, where also it links to this, uh, to this, uh, chapter towards the end of the book where people uh, speak about as, uh, themselves as okay okay i am mad uh, I, I am a joker and uh, right this is this kind of childish naivety that they bring forth uh, that, that they kind of embrace themselves maybe you mm. could say something about this uh, sort of dynamics because i find it it's extremely interesting yeah i think um so uh, uh, it'd be good to give an example um uh colleague or uh, uh, somebody writing in the University of Leicester, Professor Max Stein did a study recently of NHS whistleblowers and particularly the retaliation against them, health service whistleblowers. And he theorized that similar to the point that I was making in the book, it's a sense of a kind of a, a a, a once held sense of goodness that is lost um, by there's a kind of a Faustian pact upon joining an organization that on offer here is pay, security, 
um, and all those other things, career progression, but it's a quid pro quo and there's certain things that one um, gives up. And, uh, you know, in extreme circumstances, not all circumstances, one of those things may be a more pure version and notion about what is right and what is wrong uh, that needs to be relinquished um, because of all the grey areas and the difficult decisions and the blind eyes that need to be turned when um, in, in cases where you're in an organization and there's serious wrongdoing um, going on. And so this idea that actually what's being um, challenged there is this once held childish sense of, of self, of having been good. Um, when people that I, I speak to, it's the the retaliation that you can experience can be so visceral and difficult that a lot of people um, th that I spoke to would often internalize it. So it's really hard to be the only person speaking out. And as you know, um, it is very hard to be the subject of an investigation, for example, that might, as often happens, the investigation is set up to investigate the wrongdoing, but then can become about the whistleblower and it turns into an investigation about their character their career history and whether something can be found that can then be used to smear them. When you get the report of those investigations as a whistleblower, it's very difficult not to internalize that and to question yourself and to say, well, actually, um, are they right? And I'd, you know, um, one person who worked in an Irish bank said, you know, it is really difficult to actually say, um, you know, I know the logic of this and I know the truth of what happened when everybody else is saying something different. We are not so like divorced from social norms. Even whistleblowers would say they too are affected by uh, by what others say. And, uh, and this can be really, really challenging. But one of the things that people did that helped them to survive, I think particularly of um, uh, uh, another banking whistleblower, Martin Woods, who spoke out about Wachovia and uh, himself and, and he, he talked about it, Paul Moore, um, a fantastic um, figure in whistleblowing, who sadly passed away recently, but um, he, his disclosures led to the UK's um, Treasury Select Committee's uh, subsequent understanding of the financial crisis, like he was absolutely pivotal uh, to revelations about what kinds of cultural problems were happening in UK banks. But he talked about it too. And it was this idea, everyone does see me as uh, as unusual or not just a maverick, but somebody who's really kind of broken the norm and it, not always in a good way. And they call me mad and they call me a misfit and that. And then to embrace that and say, well, yes, yes, maybe we are. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing not to be um, you know, obsessed with fitting in to the norms when what you're seeing in front of you is, uh, is so problematic. But I think what's helpful is, I think, from the uh, the psychosocial sort of perspective and inspired by various underlying psychoanalytic theories that what's well, seen as if 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 a, if a subject or an individual is um finds themselves trapped within a particular aspect of of the symbolic or the world that they live in um to kind of turn that on its head and embrace the stigma embrace not just embrace but um parody make fun of turn it upside down, make it ridiculous in this way can be a way of neutralizing and diffusing the pain um, that that particular norm or that particular uh, way of thinking has caused them. And so that was absolutely fascinating to me because, as you know, so much of whistleblowing is, is focused on the negative side. But when you talk to anyone who works in activist groups or advocates or whistleblower lawyers, and, you know, I have done in recent studies and they say, like, can we not 
also focus on the things that help people survive and the things that people do to get through it. And I think that's what I've kind of been focusing on in the last um, while after this book is to to also ask those sorts of things because um, that's very helpful for others. But you want to do it in a way that doesn't glorify it. It's it's not, oh, this is an easy journey and here are some things that make it easier. You know, <laughs> this is a very problematic um, situation to be in, but people have found ways to live a life and to um, to see what they've done uh, that are really helpful. Yes, I'm particularly um, struck by these uh, experiences and these mentions of of these investigations performed, and uh, because we have uh, ourselves done a similar study, uh, but our whistleblowers were not even whistleblowers; they were people who kind of notified about a certain thing through internal channels. In, mm-hmm. in organizations which they did not even intend as a very serious uh, serious matter very often. But mm-hmm. uh, just reporting it through these kind of speak out channels that are uh, that are kind of put there to, because of the law that, uh, that has been passed and so on for, to protect whistleblowers and whistleblowing. And there you can there you can kind of include both complaints and and uh, kind of whistleblowing uh, cases and the distinction is not very clear. Uh, they, these claims were then investigated uh, by the use of kind of private investigators uh, and the use of psychologists and lawyers and uh, and also it's just one of those investigation services uh, that are performed by these uh, audit companies like KPMG I see in your case mm. in Paul Moore was subject to this kind of investigation that's and right, I, and I think this is kind of a chapter in <laughs> out there in it in it on its own right, but mm. uh, but these investigations are are kind of uh, just performed. They are paid by the employer uh, or who creates the mandate for this sort of investigations, defines what is within it, what is outside of its bounds, and basically pays for the result in in many cases. Uh, and they often uh, function precisely in the way as in the case of of, of Paul, where uh, where the report comes with a number of uh, of claims about personality and the disruptive nature of the person and psychotic features and and uh, and, and so forth. And uh, in, also in our cases, what this has led to was that um, I mean there was not a very happy embrace of this kind of mental. <laughs> <laughs> otherness, uh, but uh, but people people became uh, sick as a result, uh, mentally ill as a result of these investigations because mm-hmm. they were cast precisely as as uh, as as, uh, as kind of psychotic or and so forth. And in, in one of our cases, we have a person who has been diagnosed uh, with PTSD as a direct, and it was directly in the in the court uh, sessions. It was then proven that it was linked to these investigations. And mm-hmm. and in another case, you have this. Uh, you mentioned several times that the person was followed by private uh, detectives and uh, trying to. Uh, I don't know what. Uh, I mean, this this is this. Have you come across more of these kind of investigation cases? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, Teresa, I'm just going to pause here just to make sure. Um, is the noise in the background? Can you hear that or? No, it's fine. Okay, great, great. <laughs> All right, we'll resume. Um, that's fine. I just have, uh, yeah. But um, okay. So I'm very glad that you brought that up because 
things are moving fast in the whistleblowing space and also sort of more generally in people's capacity to speak out about various things in organizations as you identify and one of the ways that they're moving is as whistleblowing law becomes more sophisticated and there's calls across the world now to introduce laws and for those who are interested the international bar association with government accountability project um their 2021 report really is great to update people on exactly what's happening and where but there's a huge move but it's it's not as as if that move is going unnoticed or unresponded to there's um parallel moves on the part of organizations often um defending themselves at the advice of legal teams as happens and uh, so the law to protect organizations against disclosure is becoming similarly more sophisticated although probably not formalized in very many uh, documents or webinars or anything like this um, what we are seeing is an increase in what's called lawfare uh, of various types against people who speak out. So one aspect of that would be slap suits, so strategic um, lawsuits, I think it's called, against um, public participation. I think I've got that right, the SLAPP. But um, this is where an organisation that is under scrutiny for wrongdoing will take a case against the person who's accusing them of the wrongdoing. And this case, in 70% of cases, the case is is almost frivolous. It will never be uh, judged in favour of the organisation. It, it doesn't have the chance to succeed. But by taking this doomed to failure case, the um, outcome of that will be to drain the resources, financial um, and just the energy of the individual who was originally speaking up. So that's um, one aspect. The idea of creating investigations um, into the disclosure ostensibly, the case you mentioned in my book, Paul Morris, was ostensibly about the wrongdoing, but as often happens, quickly becomes about the individual. So, you know, the idea is, the logic is, well, to, to, to investigate this wrongdoing, we have to investigate the case itself, which also means looking at the whistleblower. But um, advocates for legal change have become um, quite specific and wise to this. And now the idea of the phrase retaliatory investigation is seen as one in which um, laws need to defend against. So in the proposed, in the EU directive that's coming in, um, I think it's article, is it article 23? lists the kind of whistleblower retaliations that are forbidden going forward. And one of those is um, vexatious proceedings against uh, the whistleblower. So kind of these sorts of investigations that um, aim to uh, to shut someone down by focusing on them as individuals. And I think, you see, I think it's complex and, and, and problematic. And what you're describing is so useful because to me, it sounds like the institution of processes that have been going on for years. So what you often have in whistleblowing cases is someone speaks out and then they're asked to, you know, when when you do, um, if you are known as a whistleblower and you're receiving some difficult retaliation, it is stressful. People often take sick leave. You just do because you need time out from this context that's becoming unbearable. And if you're taking sick leave, an organization would, you know, reasonably enough offer counseling and support in many cases. So on the face of it, if that was done in good faith, it's not automatically problematic. However, when that counselling 
um, or support ends up being a report into the whistleblower's mental health that is then used to deme demean or, or to denigrate them and to take away from their findings, then it is clearly problematic. And, you know, we have to bear in mind this often happens in countries like in many countries, mental health services are grossly underfunded. So the person really does find themselves alone and uh, and without support. And these can kind of feed in to a report that's aimed at uh, discrediting them. Um, so it's it seems like it's uh, an institutionalization of a kind of retaliation that has been a feature of disclosure for a while, and it's so important to be studying it. Yes, absolutely. And I, I was struck by you said uh, lawfare, and I think this is precisely what it, what it has become, right? Where <laughs> where uh, we have uh, recently interviewed a person for for this uh, new research project, and it was actually a whistleblower, uh, or not really, yeah, uh, in a similar way as the, as in your case, is a person who works with anti-corruption was tasked with anti-corruption. And then reported on uh, on uh, what he perceived as uh, as uh, systemic uh, problems uh, and and found contracts that were not uh, exactly kosher and uh, should mm -hmm. report about that and uh, and then he was uh, made subject to precisely this kind of investigation where mm. I think it is fascinating because obviously these kind of private uh, investigations started I think as uh, as kind of investigations into un into corruption into mm. uh, these compliance uh, investigations right anti-corruption and so forth but have been expanded to incorporate more and more kind of psychological um, uh, kind of knowledge uh, and uh, and became increasingly targeted uh, to incorporate both things right so so that's mm. exactly like in the case of Paul that you described so we find that across the spectrum that that the case that is actually being voiced is basically dismissed and and the focus is turned within the same investigation that is actually supposed to target the the financial things for instance you have mm. the target uh the target becomes mental health and i think it also goes maybe hand in hand which could be explored maybe more with all this kind of human resource literature right which is basically individualizing responsibility you have all these ethical guidelines and more and more of these kind of guidelines as they proliferate they kind of become a subject of investigation as well, right? So in some mm. of these other cases, you mentioned that people have been kind of investigated for for minor infringements of company policy uh, mm. or of ethical kind of breaches. You have these codes of conduct and so forth. And all of these kind of codes of conduct are probably there with these institutions because they have to kind of have those things, but they become activated in a kind of perverse ways during these investigations, right? Otherwise, nobody ever kind of cares. But <laughs> but at this particular moment, you find a little thing that is in some guideline and you say, well, you, you committed uh, uh, this little tiny breach here and this is very serious, but, uh, but it kind of moves attention completely away from the really serious things. And I find what we found in as a typical feature of all these kind of reports that came, uh, these investigation <laughs> reports, it was, it, they were even instructed to kind of produce a result which was kind of loss-loss 
for both the organization and the whistleblower, where you would acknowledge that, you know, yeah, there is something that, uh, that within the thing that the person is reporting, it is obviously not as serious as the person imagines because uh, he's mentally uh, exaggerating. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and so so you would kind of present a result that was that was kind of giving some credit to to the case but not enough that that it would actually amount to any kind of uh, change or punishment it was basically a status quo kind of reproducing uh, exercise at the same mm. time as once the employer had this kind of report in hand they could simply say well case dismissed now i have an objective report a fact based report and uh, and if you try to challenge this report then we can take it, then then we can dismiss you or even sack you or or whatever because this report is now the truth and and this i found very fascinating how this kind of truth claim is 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 turned into this in this report becomes the truth and and then it can be used in the court proceedings and and these investigations are even sold with the with the idea that the employer can then use those investigations in a, in the case of a court case and have better chances of winning which is not always the case but uh, but this is how it is kind of sold and, mm. and it is kind of sold as the ultimate truth about the about the whistleblowing case basically so, so this uh, this kind of manipulation of the truth throughout, and who has the truth, and uh, and and kind of becomes interesting in the context where the employer can basically buy it, right? So it becomes another product that <laughs> that is, that is there, and I think it leads to this kind of uh, privatization of law that uh, that is uh, deeply problematic, where you basically have no justice, and I think that I think this is probably the most. Uh, the most uh, interesting with these cases is that, you know, these investigations always promise to deliver justice, but structurally they cannot and, and they will not, right? Mm. So what kind of happens to law in that case? <laughs> I don't know. I know. I think, you know, there's so much in, in what you say that's, that's true. Um, and it does seem sometimes like there is no justice at the same time, though, what I come across again and again is the what do we call it the the balance of power the inequity of arms between an organization and an individual is clearly stacked on the side of the organization anyone can see that this this well most organizations have superior resources to drag out legal cases they also have access to witnesses in a claim about retaliation they also have all the files all the emails so if we're looking at purely a resource-based analysis, it's stacked on the side of the organization. However, when we, and with colleagues, we've you know interviewed almost 100 whistleblowers at this stage, and the stories do reflect that, but they also reflect that organizations often can make mistakes, that the chances come up to, to counter these things. I'm not painting a sort of a, a Pollyanna picture, it's actually fine. However, it's, I think, quite, it's important that you're doing this research and that people stay with the struggle is that it's never a done deal and there's always opportunities to challenge and we have to keep at it, you know, keep at it. And that's why legal change is part of, but not at all, an answer for all the reasons that you've, um, you've pointed out. So the struggle continues, but I, I, I'm also delighted you brought up, um, the point about the human resource uh, aspect. So um, one of the areas of research I do is to talk to actual people in the organization who are tasked with setting up whistleblower systems or receiving complaints. And we wrote a book um, with Wim van de Kajova, Mariana Fataki came out in 2019. We'd interviewed um, a lot of uh, people in high profile organizations and that was their job. 
And it's they're likewise caught in a difficult um, situation. Uh, what we're seeing every time you hear about a new whistleblowing law, just picture in your head the middle manager or the low level manager who is going to be tasked with implementing what that law means. So and, and do they have enough resources there's the potential for kind of scapegoating managers at middle or low level um, in whistleblowing cases for not implementing the law the way they should have because they haven't been resourced to do it is pretty high. And I think that um, more attention needs to be placed on those people because um, people in working in organisations, vast, vast, vast majority are trying to do their best. And uh, if organizations are passing responsibility for receiving whistleblower disclosures down the chain to ordinary workers or middle managers without giving them um, the resources and everything else they need to actually do that, what kind of position are you putting people in? Can you imagine getting a disclosure about systemic deep-seated wrongdoing that the whole industry is structured, or at least your organization is structured on, and you're sort of three years in the job and five years out of college or school you know uh, this is incredibly problematic for the person um and i think that's that's really key but um oh and the other point you're absolutely right about is uh people who do speak up and are subject to these investigations and the minor infringements that they can be called up for i remember one of the people I interviewed martin woods um for wachovia bank and he was uh, cited for, was it dismissal or at least serious discipline because he didn't fill out the form for his sick leave correctly. I don't know what box he left unticked, but this was seen as a major uh, reason for discipline. Um, another, Olivia Green, a senior manager in an Irish um, banking organisation. So she was senior and I think she lived an hour and a half away from where the headquarters that she worked was. And so they started tracking her and well, did she come in at nine o'clock as she was contracted to or was it 20 past nine or was it 930 and under surveillance for those minor, minor things as well. So it becomes farcical, doesn't it, at that point? Um, but like you say, it's uh, it's those sorts of things that are that are absolutely brought out to create this um investigation report that's a kind of a manifestation of a truth claim exactly like you say and I think from that point of view um, the work that you're doing it might be it would be really interesting to look at we've studied sort of practices of memorialization you know in in sociology or history um, people have often studied when a disaster happens and then there's this sort of commemoration and then the impression is given that the case is closed and the situation is finished because we have a report or in the case of, you know, historical disasters, well, we've built a statue or we've had an apology um, or we've had an inquiry and a report. So therefore, it is beyond challenge what we've said in the report because the case has been closed. Um, and I can, so you can really see parallels with what you're describing there and the outcomes of these investigations and how they're used to give the impression that the thing has been actually looked into when it hasn't. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, that's a very good point. I was just thinking of returning a bit to what you said about the HR and the, and it it is indeed very tricky because you have more and more regulation, right? Any kind of company has to kind of relate to, and what we see is that uh, you you okay you you might train your HR, but what is actually more and more common in these whistleblowing cases, at least what we have seen, is that they are directly outsourced. 
just to a private mm. uh, private company, audit company, or or anybody you have kind of uh, legal services agreement with from before. Mm. Uh, so so you basically outsource the responsibility that you have naturally as a as a leader for an organization when that such a claim arises to a third party, and then you use that argument as you know, the third party is objective and neutral and, and so forth, which is uh, rarely the case since they are being Absolutely. paid. But, <laughs> but yeah, you've the agency problem. But I, I think what you're hearing more and more of, um, there's been some really interesting webinars um, over the last year with compliance experts. Um, there's an increasing uh, legalization of how these decisions are being made as well. So even just informally, people say that in cases of sort of serious whistleblowing claims, the lawyer is brought in much earlier in the process than would have been the case before. So a compliance person who's kind of saying, right, well, this person is, this whistleblower is talking about a serious breach of compliance. Um, and therefore, we have to act on that. Much earlier on in the conversation, um, according to sort of senior compliance people, the legal perspective has been mm -hmm. brought to bear. So there's a change in the overall, I wouldn't say ideology, but the, the drive is suddenly to protect the borders of the organization because that's the prime directive if you like from a lawyer's point of view whereas mm -hmm. the compliance the first instinct is to deal with the wrongdoing um, and you know hr's instinct as well as employees here we have to um mm -hmm. those in the correct way hopefully or at least be seen to be dealing with them in the correct way so you have those three different perspectives but my understanding is that organizations in these cases of whistleblowing and corruption are going to the legal first which is about defend 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 uh, and that doesn't work out so well for the person bringing the claim forward yes i think that's what we're seeing more and more okay. is this kind of legalization of working life at all levels and formalization of even minor minor things and i think that you know, just to, for a final note, I, I noticed uh, that, you know, uh, in the US especially, you now have these kind of uh, surveillance uh, systems and monitoring systems of everything that is basically being done in an, in, in an organization, right? This mm -hmm. kind of TerraMind, this kind of software that enables you to kind of see, uh, see all, uh, whatever is any employee doing on their computer basically during the day. And it tracks, you know, all conversations, including their content and so forth. And, and, and kind of you, it enables you to program all sorts of internal regulation, compliance regulation, anti-money laundering things, but also ethical guidelines and so forth into these kind of coded uh, software features. So that, for instance, if you try to access a file that you don't really have access, to, should not access, it flags you immediately and so forth. And it produces this kind of uh, everyday reports on, you know, threat assessment of, of, the, of the workers. Right, mm -hmm. so so that you give risk scores to individual workers, you know, uh, how many minutes they have not been somewhere, for instance, right, can count. I mean, all these kind of things you can program as you wish as an institution into that kind of software, and and it has this one feature which is uh, you know this internal threat detection. So it's basically kind of even evades any need for for kind of. Uh, you know, whistleblowing or anything, it kind of imagines this compliance as fully automated. And I see that this is kind of a, also a development that has kind of been speeded up during this COVID crisis, right? Where, where you have more and more surveillance products uh, in workplaces and organizations. 
and I find that this kind of uh, this kind of um, what do you say this this kind of thinking you know compliance has become so complex and so difficult right you need the legal teams to actually uh, to actually handle all the regulation that is there and and standards and whatnot so that it becomes kind of a natural idea that comes up that well can't we just automate compliance <laughs> right? mm-hmm. and and this and and this this seems like the kind of next uh, frontier of, of of that and and you think that okay what happens to actually ethics uh when you when you try to automate ethics through these systems right mm. but this kind of uh, challenges this whole uh, whole i think fundamental idea of okay you have to live to some kind of moral ethical and regulatory standards mm. <laughs> but but then you try to automate it and then you try to then you try to see and then you actually see through this kind of software every single worker in your organization as a potential threat you know threat to uh, reputation and and whatnot but also mm. as a potential whistleblower that needs to be suppressed at the very beginning i think is is the kind of underlying idea so yeah so I, I, I find it fascinating because on one hand we kind of want to stimulate to to whistleblowing but on the other hand you have technical systems that kind of make it impossible and they even generate this kind of real-time forensic evidence you can even as a you can even go back in all the files and like you were saying like the organization has access to everything they really do within these systems they can just pull back a few years so if they want to and and find anything that you have done so uh, so i think this is this is kind of fascinating Absolutely. if you have some kind of like, thoughts on this development it would be great well for sure and this is something that we're actually at the moment planning to research um a little bit more particularly you're getting those dynamics originating in in um sophisticated ict firms you know um with things like uh surveillance um of employees and assessing as threats um and but you could look at it from a macro point of view. I mean, what that sounds like is an increasingly paranoid and defensive organizational response, doesn't it? Because um, when we're anxious and when organizations are anxious and when we individuals are anxious, you see everything as a threat um, and there is no room for any kinds of nuance or gray areas. And I suppose what people have spoken about is that as we move towards this phase of um, say the exploitation of of resources and this ever increasing search for diminishing margins and increasing search to beat competitor organizations, um, and the 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 search for profitability, um, even as resources are consumed, you're going to get that because it's a it's a narrowing sphere and uh, organizations are necessarily. Um, becoming more and more anxious and that anxious anxiety would manifest itself in defensiveness which means sort of identifying threats um and and pointing to to who's who those threats um might be in these cases it's uh employees like you say so it's kind of um it, there's a number of different moves that are almost preempting the whistleblower which i think is the point that you're making as well um, what we're seeing more and more of is uh, non-disclosure agreements being signed on contract signature. So when someone joins an organization, they're asked to sign an NDA in case they do see something they might want to speak up about. Yes. Now, people should be aware that in no situation is that legally enforceable if you're also covered by a whistleblowing law or if you're also covered by um, law uh, law that protects your rights to speak out um, as an employee you can't um, challenge that law just because someone's uh, signed an NDA, but it has enough impact on the person 
to create a chill effect because who's going to take a chance? I mean, I may be protected, but I have signed this, this what they call it's pre-taliation, almost like you're getting in there before the person even mm. thinks about speaking up. So it's the same dynamic that you're talking about. It's um, it's prescribing, it's, it's narrowing the field of, uh, of, of possibility for mm. speaking out before it even happens. Um, and I think that's uh, a very important point. And I suppose the other point to make is parallel to what you've described, which is preventing people from accessing files was one of the examples that you're given and um, that they shouldn't be and tracking them when they do. What we're also seeing is a growth in what's considered um, secret or classified um, or proprietary uh, or trade secrets. So more and more information within organizations is being kind of legally prescribed under that umbrella, which then makes it in some cases a crime or a punishable offense to access it. So it's kind of two moves in parallel. Uh, it's making it more difficult to hide the fact that you're accessing this information, but the information itself is becoming increasingly out of bounds from a legal point of view. And that's something that we're, that's actively one of the biggest issues in the ways in which um, the laws are changing to prevent people from speaking truth to power or speaking out in the public interest. I'm so glad that the conversation has focused so much on where things are going, because although the, the book was written um, about uh, whistleblowers in the financial services, since then, things are taking um, various different strange directions and I'm delighted that we've had a chance to touch on lots of those different aspects. Brilliant and it was wonderful talking to you so <laughs> you to too. thank to you <laughs> thanks to you and thanks for joining me and thanks for the people listening. This was Kate Kenny on her book Whistleblowing Towards a New Theory and more reflections as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you indeed.